I'm just hoping that I do not eat this clicker or this microphone or anything else because my wife has me on a three-day diet. You ever heard of the military diet? I'd never heard of it. I, I, she got a hold of it somehow. I'm wondering if it's a joke or what. You can actually eat ice cream on this diet. But uh, I saw the Brooks at Chick-fil-A tonight beforehand, and Will, I was over there with a the coffee. And instead of ice cream tonight, I had the creamers that go in the coffee. I thought, well, maybe that would work. But um, I'm not used to preaching or teaching on a rather empty stomach. So if you hear some growling, it's probably me. Uh, if you see me gnawing on your pen you got there, I'm sorry. We'll just have to, you know, proceed after that. But uh, it's always a blessing to be here at Hoover. I love, uh, I love the, the church here. I don't get to see you all that much, but sometimes during the summer on a summer series, I know several of you. And it uh, just seems like a great family atmosphere here uh, by the grace of God. And I know you have fine elders and deacons. I love your uh, preachers here, the Websters, um, Kyle Wadley and his family. Daryl, just uh, known these guys for years and years. I believe you all are very blessed. And I hope and pray that the Lord will continue to watch over you here. What a great topic, the resurrected Jesus. And what a great theme that you all are having this, this summer. And I'm not going to rehash everything other, other than to say, you know, the whole Bible is about Jesus. And so it's appropriate to have a, a summer series like this. I mean, when you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's Jesus is here. He was here. And that's, uh, that's really the main point of the gospel, wanting people to know that the Messiah that has been promised is, is here. And then when you read Acts through Revelation, you read that... Uh, that he's going to come back after he died and rose from the dead. He's going to come back and, and, and he's promised us he's going to come back and we ought to be looking forward to it, expecting it. And in the meantime, we can even hurry it up by our continued work and worship and diligence as Christians. And then if we go backwards to the Old Testament, what we saw, what we see over and over and over again is the message, is the promise, is the prophecy, uh, and even is the picture that the Messiah is coming and the Messiah will save and the Messiah will die the Messiah will suffer the Messiah will die the Messiah will rise from the dead I mean he is the seed of woman Genesis 3 15 who would crush the head of Satan he's the seed of Abraham of Isaac of Jacob the promised seed of, of Judah he is the uh, promised Prince of Peace who would be the king after the order of David who would uh, not only be a king, but he would be the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53, who would not just suffer, but he would suffer tremendously, Psalm 22, as both his hands and his feet would be pierced, and he would die. In Psalm 16:10, he would rise from the dead. That's not to say that all of the Old Testament prophets and those reading the Old Testament for hundreds or over a thousand years, or even the first century uh, apostles there uh, before Jesus had died and rose from the dead. It's not, that's not to say that everyone always understood all of these prophecies and all these pictures and types and uh, eventual anti-types, but, um, but by the grace of God, we have a resurrected Lord to celebrate. And it means everything. It means everything to us. I mean, think about the resurrection for just a moment. It gives our faith meaning. If Jesus has not risen, your faith, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, is futile. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, our preaching is empty. It is meaningless if Jesus has not risen from the dead. There would be no reason to be here today. 
Uh, the resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to prayer. For He ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. He is the great high priest who paved the way to the holy of holies. And if He is not... Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. And if He is not alive today, then He is not the living high priest sitting at the right hand of God who hears and makes our petitions known to the Father. He gives... His resurrection gives prayer meaning... His resurrection gives our singing meaning. Can you imagine us singing up from the grave? He arose when He never rose from the grave. I know that my Redeemer lives when He's not really living anymore. It gives our singing so many of us, the songs that we sing and praise to God and in building up of one another meaning. It gives the Lord's Supper meaning. Not that we are necessarily celebrating the resurrection of Christ directly in our consumption and our partaking of and communion with God and each other as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. But we proclaim the Lord's death, Paul said, till He comes. So tell me this, what good would it do to proclaim the Lord's death every first day of the week if He was never coming again because He was still dead and in the grave? He gives the Lord's Supper meaning... It gives so many things meaning. It gives immersion meaning. It gives baptism meaning. And not the removal of the filth of the flesh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by or through the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, then, his, then what He has for us to do, the Christian life, absolutely has no meaning. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely... It gives all of our lives meaning. And it was so fundamental to the early church that when you read through the, the book of Acts, you see over and over and over and over the emphasis that they put on the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, so much emphasis was put on this that in Acts chapter 1, you read that when they were going to uh, re replace Judas, who had died, they were only going to replace him with a disciple who had seen the risen Lord. Acts chapter 1, verse, verse 22. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And if they had not witnessed the resurrection, they could not be an actual witness of the resurrected Lord. One of the qualifications of being an apostle was having witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And when you go through Acts, the very first sermon that we have recorded for us in the early church as the church was established after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, you have the... the uh, climax of it, the, the gist of it, the foundation of it is Jesus Christ. After the Apostle Peter pointed out that what the people were seeing there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem was a fulfillment of what the prophecy uh, of what the prophet Joel had said, Acts chapter 2 verses 17 and following, he then proceeds to quote from Psalm 16 verses 9 through uh, 11 or 8 through 11 and mentioned that the one to whom the prophet David had spoken of was the one that they had just crucified and the one who had risen from the dead because his body did not see corruption as the body of David did, which is one reason we can know that what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 16 
And that particular phrase, uh, not see corruption, his soul would not see, excuse me, his, his, uh, you would not allow his holy one to see corruption, that it would be impossible for that to be referring to David. In fact, Peter says, David, the prophet, being a prophet, spoke concerning, verse 31, the resurrection of Christ. Not just Acts chapter 2, though. You go to Acts chapter 3, you see where Peter is there on uh, Solomon's porch and he not just mentions, but, but he has as one of his main points here, hey, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And after he and John were arrested in Acts chapter 4, you have them not being afraid to tell the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin the, the main authority there among the Jews, governing authority, he, he let them know religious governing authority, if you will, that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And after they uh, persecuted them, after they had arrested them three times, those same apostles were not afraid to continue going out and continue preaching the resurrected Lord, Acts chapter 5. Just a few chapters later, after the gospel was being preached to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, again, central to the gospel message, was letting Cornelius and his household know that Jesus Christ had not only died, but he had risen from the dead. And as you go into the life of Paul, you see the Apostle Paul time and time again. Acts chapter 17, he's speaking there with Silas in Thessalonica. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And after he and, and uh, Silas leave that city... Because of the persecution that had arisen, they go down to Berea and eventually they are in Athens. And when they are in Athens, we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and following, that they again mention and talk about the resurrected Lord God having risen, uh, excuse me, excuse me uh, Jesus rising from the dead, verse 31. And when they heard this, they mocked. There will be people today who mock the resurrected Lord. I read a a lot of articles and books and things um, by unbelievers who mock the idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. I submit to you tonight, but some of the things that we are going to that we are going to continue to talk about, and other things that we don't have time to discuss, show us that there is a solid case for us coming to the proper conclusion that Jesus Christ sure did rise from the dead. The Apostle Paul was so convinced of this that when he appeared before the governing authorities, uh, Felix, Festus, uh, Agrippa, excuse me, Acts chapter 26, that he, again, before he was interrupted by Festus, who said, you are mad, you're crazy, Paul, much learning is driving you mad. Right before that, the apostle Paul had appealed to the resurrected Lord. And he responded to Festus, saying, I'm not, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Over and over and over again, you see Peter, Paul, and the apostles appealing to the empty tomb, appealing to the risen Lord. Jesus, the resurrected one, is Jesus, the resurrected Lord, means everything. And it's quite appropriate to have a period of discussion or of study tonight on this very subject. I'd like to remind us that both Peter in Acts chapter 2 and the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 not only appealed to the uh, 
the resurrected Lord and being witnesses of it, but they appealed to the prophecy that is found in Psalm 16. But before we get there, let me just mention a couple of other things about their testimony. They made known that their testimony was not just a touchy-feely, I kind of think so kind of testimony. They gave testimony, as is recorded beginning in the book of Acts, testimony of the risen Lord, whom He presented Himself, Jesus Christ, when He had risen, presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible Proofs. Notice that the word presented comes from a Greek word that means to set beside, to show, to prove. And use many proofs, a sure sign, that which is provable. A, and it, would be, it is quite appropriate, as you read in the New King James and other translations, that it's not just proofs, but many proofs and many infallible proofs. You know, Peter said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul seriously laid out the facts that Jesus did not just... There was not just one person who said, I think that Jesus might have, have risen from the dead, but over and over and over again, Jesus made known, revealed Himself as the risen Lord to a number of different witnesses, including over 500 at one time. The apostles, the Bible writers, they made sure to point out that this is not to be contended to be to believe as some kind of fable or just I hope so kind of message, but they were giving the most powerful evidence that, or one of the most powerful evidences that you could give to believe this, and that is the eyewitness testimony of men who, did they have really anything to gain by it? I mean, even well-known unbelievers for years and years have concluded that they may not have believed what these men say, but they were quite honest when they noted that, for example, Paul was absolutely convinced of the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, and this proves that it was widely believed not many years after the death of Jesus. Surely Jackson Case said years ago, the testimony of Paul alone is sufficient to convince us beyond any reasonable doubt that this was the commonly accepted opinion in his day, an opinion at the time supported by the highest authority imaginable, the eyewitnesses themselves. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 appealed to eyewitness testimony, for in verse 32 he said, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, standing up with the other apostles. We are witnessing to this fact that we have seen the risen Lord. I want to say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But let me also mention that both Jesus and the apostles appealed to the Old Testament. Now Jesus, before His death and before His resurrection in Matthew chapter 12, He appealed to the, the, the type, the picture of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And not just in the heart of the earth, but only be there for three days and three nights because He would rise from the dead. It was pictured in the Old Testament. I believe you had a lesson on your series this summer, if I'm not mistaken, on Abraham and Isaac being sacrificed and the type there of Christ Hebrews chapter 11, 
where in a figurative sense He has risen from the dead, though He actually did not die. I believe we could say there that that was a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ portrayed in a pictorial way in the Old Testament. But then the Apostle Peter here in Acts chapter 2 not only says, hey, we are witnesses of this, but guess what? The prophet David told us this was going to happen. Now it is the case that some of the Old Testament prophecies were not as clear as we might think they should have been. I mean, even when Jesus was on earth and prophesied of His coming death, and I'm not, to say, I'm not saying here that they should have been because the Holy Spirit knew what He was doing when He inspired the Old Testament men to write these things. Just as sure as Jesus knew what He was doing in John chapter 2 when He was not as clear as His own disciples might have wanted Him to be when He said, destroy this temple in the three days, I will raise it up. What temple was He talking about? Well, John goes on to tell us there in John chapter 2 that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the disciples recalled this passage and the Scriptures. And no doubt, well, I don't know exactly when Peter began to understand that Psalm 16 was a messianic prophecy. There's no doubt there are other, you, you might say, more clear prophecies even from the book of Psalms, like in Psalm 22 about the, the Messiah whose hands and feet would be pierced or other psalms that talk about the coming of the Messiah. But there's no doubt that Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. Now exactly how much of Psalm 16 is about the Messiah and how much of it is about actually David then and there, it's a beautiful psalm. In fact, turn back there, if you will, before we notice uh, Peter's use of it. Psalm 16 is a beautiful psalm about faith, about trust, about what God lends to us gives us. David said, My goodness is nothing apart from you. I love that phrase. Psalm 16, verse 2. Uh, He rejoices in the saints who are on earth. Verse 3. He gives a, a warning of those who would hasten after some other God. Verse 4. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my my lot. The lines have fallen to me, verse 6, in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Seems there that David is talking about himself. And then in verses 8 and following, you see where, where David is discussing one eventually who who would not see corruption. Verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the place of the departed spirits, or that's, uh, I believe, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. But you know, when the the Apostle Peter quoted from this in Acts chapter 2, he didn't leave the impression as he was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as Luke wrote this down by inspiration some years later, he did not leave any doubt who David was talking about here. David was not merely talking about himself or in Acts chapter 2, as you see on the screen behind me, David says concerning him, concerning the Messiah, 
the anointed one. My heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in the Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning not himself, but the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Did David's flesh see corruption? Yes. Peter appealed to his tomb as proof. They knew where his tomb was at that day. We don't know today, but they did. Someone might claim to know over in the Bible lands or in Jerusalem, but the fact is we don't really know today. But they knew. They knew where his tomb was, which was proof that... I mean, he presented it as proof that his, his body corrupted, but not the body of the anointed one, not the body of the Messiah. And so we have the apostles who were appealing to not just eyewitness testimony, but also to even the types and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Turn over to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. Notice that the apostle Paul in Acts 13, as he is... He uh, and Barnabas are preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. Notice again the, the crux of the matter. He gets down to the fact that, hey, you need to come to believe in Jesus. He has, as he repeatedly says in this lesson here, he repeatedly says he is the resurrected one. Chapter 13, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses to the people. See, they are to, we are to understand the powerful testimony of eyewitnesses and the hundreds that there were, including and especially those disciples who gave eyewitness testimony. But again, just like Peter in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul not only appeals to the eyewitness testimony, he appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures and specifically Psalm 16, once again, as proof, verse 35, that Jesus has risen from the dead. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Let me back up here and make a side point that I think is very interesting. In this passage here in Acts chapter 13, by the way, let me just back up. For, here we are in Acts 13, but go back to Psalm 16 for just another, just another moment. You might want to put your, your finger in both places. I think this is an interesting side point dealing with this particular passage. You know, as you read through Psalm 16, I don't believe you see any words here that say the Holy Spirit said this or that God said this. We have the prophet, we have David speaking. We have David recording this for us. It's interesting to me, and this is just a little side point, that when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament. There are times where they will say, God said this, or the Holy Spirit says. The Apostle Paul is saying here in Acts 13 that God has fulfilled this for us, verse 33, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus. God said this, God raised up Jesus. Verse 34, He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Notice verse 35, therefore He also says in another song, who says... Who is He? Well, it's going back to God. God says this. He did this. He raised Him. God says what we read in Psalm 16. But who was it that wrote Psalm 16? David did. How do we know that? Well, we've got really good testimony from Peter that it was David who said this. But notice that Paul said God said it. 
The point being is this, and I think it's a powerful point as we remember to uphold the, uh, how awesome Scripture is and how great it is and how we ought to not revere the print and the paper, but revere the one who gave it to us. Because whether David wrote it, whether Peter said it, whether Moses carved it on a tablet, actually that was done with the finger of God at one point, but we have the fact that however it came to man, Peter, Paul makes the point in Acts 13 that it came from God. And so all of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, is His Word, the psalmist says. It's all truth because it's from God. That doesn't mean that there aren't statements from unbelievers or even Satan himself in Scripture. But let's not, let's not ever minimize how awesome God's holy Word is. Because whether Isaiah penned it or Peter said it and later it was recorded by Luke, it is awesome because it is from God. The Apostle Paul not only appealed to the, the resurrection of Jesus and eyewitness testimony of it, he appealed to the Old Testament scriptures and he made known to us that one of the differences between the resurrection of Jesus and all the other resurrections that we read in scripture, and there are a number of those, that there is a difference that the Apostle Paul mentions right here in, in, 1 Corinthians, in, in uh, Acts chapter 13. You know, there are those skeptics like the one you read on the screen behind me here. There are those who say, you know, what does it matter about the, the resurrection of Jesus? I would think it would have been, he says, Dennis McKenzie says, would have been met by a resounding yawn rather than surprise, followed by, so what else can he do? Adam's act of coming into the world as a full-grown adult is more spectacular. By the time he rose, this was a rather common occurrence. Well, he may very well be referring to the fact that, yes, the Bible does record a number of other resurrections. Not a ton of them, but some of them. But notice one of the differences, one of the main differences. Man, I can't believe how much time has passed already. I only have about 13 minutes here, guys. One of the main differences between all of these resurrections, which are notable and certainly amazing stories in Scripture that God has revealed to us, given us. But one of the main differences is the fact that Paul says he would no more return to corruption as he is basing that argument both on the fact that the Old Testament prophesied of this and that that is indeed actually what happened not many years earlier as it was prophesied as not only the uh, the Old Testament prophesied but Jesus himself on a number of occasions prophesied of his being raised from the dead and then it, the fact is, even though there are those who would contend it's the resurrection per se that matters and not the fact that Jesus never died again, the fact is that is very much one of the main emphasized points in the New Testament of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not saying it's repeatedly emphasized. I'm saying it is one of the big ones and it is a main one, a main difference between Jesus' resurrection and all the other resurrections recorded in Scripture. Jesus, having been raised from the dead, the Romans writer Paul wrote, 
dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Paul said he no more returns to corruption. There are three differences right there. If anyone ever asks you, well, why is the resurrection of Jesus all that important? I mean, didn't other people rise from the dead? Well, again, not all that many, at least not that many recorded. Amazing miracles they were to make certain that people understood the uh, Word of God was being revealed to man. And in the case of Jesus Himself, raising Lazarus from the dead and... uh, uh, to, to prove to people that, in fact, He was the Son of God. But you know, one of the lessons we can learn from even John chapter 11, this entire subject matter that, that you could spend hours and hours looking at, is that for some people, regardless of how much evidence you give them, how much testimony there is, some people will never believe in the resurrected Lord. I mean, they... There were thousands who rejected Him, many, many thousands who rejected Him when He came and put on flesh. And when He, in their very presence, not only worked miracles, but even went so far as to raise people from the dead. And as magnificent as those resurrections were, I contend the resurrection of Jesus is different. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, Psalm 16. It was prophesied time and time again by Jesus Himself. And not only that, He rose never to die again. Notice that the apostles, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord, notice one of the amazing things about the story is it's not like they started out to do this, right? Number one, when they were with Jesus for three years, it was obvious that they didn't quite understand everything that Jesus was saying. They didn't like the idea of Him dying. Remember Peter rebuking Christ for saying that, wait a minute, you can't do this. But yet this was why Jesus came to earth. He was going to fulfill His purpose. Jesus lived, He died, and He rose from the dead, which I contend is the only reason why the apostles would go from being so scared to death, Mark chapter 14. When they came to arrest Jesus, do you remember the disciples all forsook Him? They fled one of... One of his followers was so scared that when he lost his clothing, his garment, he fled, the text says, away naked. Peter was so scared, he denied him three times. Even after he was crucified. You recall that the apostles were meeting, John says, behind closed doors. The text says, for fear of the Jews. They were scared, they were scared, they were scared. And something happened. Because just a few days later, Peter and the apostles stood up in Jerusalem amidst thousands and thousands of Jews and proselytes and made known to them in a very courageous way that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. How did their... Fear changed to such boldness. Why did their fear change to such boldness? And why is it that they could go throughout their lives living such a courageous and preaching such a courageous message among such and so many unbelievers? And why is it that they would not just be so bold, but that they would even face their deaths? So says... 
Luke in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, as James is recorded as being killed with the sword, and as a number of other historical witnesses, like the writings of some of the early church so-called fathers, and as recorded in Fox's book of martyrs, a number of the apostles, nearly all of them except John, dying because of the resurrected Jesus whom they preached. I submit to you that one of the convincing elements of this story is that you had men whose fear changed to boldness and they gave, in a manner of speaking, everything they had for this, to get this message out. Because they knew it was only by the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we have hope of eternal life. You know, Wayne Jackson wrote this several years ago in Reason and Revelation, uh, published by Apologetics Press. He said, while men may die out of religious deception, they do not willingly go to their deaths knowing they are perpetrating a hoax. You know, how many of us, if we were just to come up with some kind of fictitious story tonight, that we thought, well, you know, we just need, let's go and have some fun and tell everybody about this and maybe get famous. Not going to get rich. Do you think the disciples, the apostles got rich for what they were doing? But let's go do this. Let's just go and, and, and entertain some people. And maybe we'll make the papers with this story that we're going to tell all of us here. What's going to happen when people start persecuting us for this story we're telling? Number one, most of us don't really want to waste our time doing something like that, right? It just sounds ridiculous. But number two, even if we thought it was somehow maybe kind of worthwhile, what's going to happen when people start, start persecuting us and when people start killing one by one of us? I submit to you, I don't think it would take the first bit of persecution or the first martyr for us to raise our hands and oh, we were just what? Ah, uh, we were just joking around. The apostles were not joking around. They believed what they taught. But wait a minute, some people say, you know, Eric, I just can't buy this resurrection story. I can't buy the resurrect resurrection story because I don't believe in resurrections. I mean, have you ever seen anyone rise from the dead? I haven't. So why, Eric, why would you believe in the resurrected Lord? Well, I submit to you that everyone, whether you are an atheist or a theist, everyone believes in some things they've never seen. Right? I mean, if you ask the atheist, where did everything come from? You know what? I, I've read uh, more and more atheists just coming out and saying, including Richard Dawkins on public television down in Australia just about three or four years ago. Basically, everything came from nothing. Everything came from nothing. But wait a minute, how does something come from nothing? Well, it doesn't. Have you ever, ever, has anyone ever seen something come from nothing? No. It's not natural. And so notice how the atheist believes in something he or she has never seen. Or how do you get life from non-life? We've never seen that happen. But in order for atheistic evolution to be true, you had to have get 
You had to get life somehow from non-life. They call it spontaneous generation. And you know what the atheistic evolutionist says. He says, yeah, at some point in time in the past, life came from non-life. Have you ever seen that happen? No. We've got a cassette or a, a case of 24 lectures by Dr. Robert Hazen, who's probably studied from an atheistic evolutionary perspective the origin of life more than any other person I know on this planet. And you know what he says? In this course on the origin of life, he basically says, this is not a direct quote, but he basically says, we have no earthly idea about the origin of life. You know, they believe that life came from non-life even though they've never seen that happen. I submit to you that everyone believes in something they've never seen. But here's the kicker. If you believe that there is a supernatural creator, you see, you don't necessarily, you may not necessarily convince someone who doesn't believe in God and the resurrected Jesus. I would first submit to you that one appropriate, though not the only approach to this subject, one appropriate approach would be let's prove that God exists first, that an infinite, uncreated, omnipotent, omniscient, Supernatural creator exists. It's logical to believe because matter demands a maker. Life demands a life giver. Design demands a designer. Morality demands a moral lawgiver. Once you come to prove that there is a God, a supernatural creator, then let me ask you this. Could that supernatural God ever raise one from the dead? Eric, why do you believe in the resurrected Lord? I must say... I believe in the resurrected Lord, number one, because I believe in God. And it makes perfect sense that occasionally, at least, God would work a supernatural miracle for the purpose of us coming to believe that He is. And in the case of the resurrected Lord, for us coming to believe that Jesus Christ did what He said He was going to do, die, and eventually rise from the dead. I believe in the resurrected Lord, number one, because I believe God exists. Number two, based upon the evidence, I can believe that the Bible is the Word of God who in a consistent manner, in an amazing manner, reveals to us one piece of evidence after another after another, not all of which we've been able to get to tonight, that Jesus Christ is indeed the resurrected Lord. Will you bow with me, please? Holy Father in heaven, it is such an honor to bow our heads in the name of, by the authority of, the resurrected one who has opened up the way into the holy of holies so at this very moment we can be confident that our petition, our prayer is being heard by you. Us feeble human beings who have so sadly and so many times in our lives have not acted right, have not thought the right kinds of things or said the right kinds of things and have stained our souls with sin. We're so thankful that Jesus came to earth to do what we could never do and live a perfect life and be the perfect sacrifice to be the one who could fulfill the plan to seek and to save the lost through His holy life and His amazing death in our place and has risen from the dead so that we might rise to walk a new life. Father, please help us to genuinely live 
the new life in Christ, to be and to act like the new creatures that we are, and to be confident in the message of the New Testament that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and, dear God, by, by that very fact, and by your word, we are so happy to know that when we die, that we now have hope of being raised from the dead and hope of an eternal life with you. We ask these things, as we said earlier in this prayer, in the name of Jesus. Amen.